Hello, everybody, and welcome to Silver Line Behind the Frame, episode number 19. I'm Micah Ness, and in this episode, I get to sit down with Judy Patrick from Judy Patrick Photography, who has been a really great friend and has been a photographer for over 30 years. And Judy is based in Alaska and gets a chance to photograph resource development throughout the state and the country, shooting some incredible settings and projects in really cool places. And we talk about her transition from film and slides to digital and also the art of photography and some really valuable insights into how she's been able to continue to stay relevant in a constantly changing environment for photographers. Hope you enjoy it. All right, we are here on location in Anchorage, Alaska, and we are sitting down with a good friend and second mother, <laughs> Judy Patrick. How are you doing today? Hey, good, Micah. How are you? I'm doing awesome. It's it's always awesome to be back up here. I feel like it's it's a second home because I lived up here for about five years, and and uh, there's a lot to like in Alaska. And obviously, you agree because you live here all the time. I know. Whenever <laughs> we go anywhere, we always think about how nice it is other places, but how really good it is to get home to Alaska. My, you know, my husband has a saying. He says it's not easy living here. He says, but it's good living. Yeah. And I just think that's really true because it's not that easy of a place to live, but um, it's it just has so many opportunities, uh, opportunities professionally, career-wise, oh, and yeah. recreation-wise, and the people here are still, you know, pretty earnest and hardworking. Yeah. And uh, what's important to me is that they understand the value. <coughs> excuse me, of resource development. And uh, we're a very foundational resource-based state, and so mm-hmm. we're really connected to um, to our resources, you know, fishing, timber, yeah. uh, mining, oil and gas, you know. And so I, I just really appreciate the fact that we still haven't lost sight of mm-hmm. where things come from. And yeah. I think that makes for just a more wholesome economy because we don't have that sort of, you know, like we want to use the resources, but we have no clue where they come from. Yeah. Yeah, and it's such an interesting balance up here because of, I mean, you have these industries, obviously the the uh, um, oil and gas being such a major thing up here, but then a big part as well is this, you have all these people visiting here. It's a large tourism stay with fishing and hunting and travel and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's, you know, from, if when you're on the outside, you don't realize how much different, you know, the two sides have to coincide in, in a place like this. I mean, it's, it's the last frontier, but it's also has such amazing things to offer from the land and the place and the location and everything. Uh, that's very true. Well, one of my favorite things to do is to introduce, uh, and we'll get to talking about photography at some yes. point, I'm sure, <laughs> but uh, I just am super passionate about resource development. And um, recently we were just uh, with a group of tourists up in Denali, uh-huh. and uh, it was fun you know, to get to be a tourist in our home state. But, you know, I always try to steer the conversation that way a little bit. And people are amazed, you know, yeah. that, that we still, um, you know, that the things that they used, um, that it's what we produce. Mm-hmm. And, and like, for instance, right outside Denali National Park is Usability Coal Mine. They produce some of the best, cleanest coal, you know, in a, yeah. the world, practically. And it's right outside Denali National Park. And I don't know how many millions of people every summer <coughs> go right past it and never even know it's there. Yeah. And so if that's not a you know, testimony to responsible resource development. I don't know what is. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely dive into that because that's, that's a huge part of, I mean, both of our, our connections, you know, up here in Alaska. Um, but leading up to that, I mean, so, so just 
for those that uh, that don't know, um, why don't you just uh, explain what what is what would you say your your job or I mean I feel like for for me as well and I, I believe for you as well when it's something that you love to do I don't look at it as a job all the time I mean there are some things you have to just grind through and do it and it's work but like it's it's a fun thing to do so what would you say that uh, you spend your time doing to <laughs> Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a photographer, first and foremost, and since I was 12 years old, I always knew I was going to be a photographer of some sort, and I came to Alaska, and I'm afraid of bears, and so that pretty much ruled out any wildlife <laughs> yep, type yep, photography there's or a lot nature of bears photography, out there. <laughs> and so what's left in Alaska, but in our resource industries, you know, yeah. which I actually didn't pursue directly, yeah. I um, kind of ended up that way, sort of in a circuitous route. But what has ended up happening is uh, I have discovered that what I love to photograph um, are really people working. Yeah. And so people working end up, you know, I end up in these, you know, resource type uh, mm -hmm. locations. And, um, and that really has become my passion is to photograph people working. And one time I sat with a man uh, on an airplane. He was a total stranger to me. And I was explaining to him about my commercial and industrial photography. And he said, you know what you really like to photograph? And I said, no, what? And he goes, human ingenuity. Mm, and I was like, yeah. it had never occurred to me like that's that. That's good. And he said, uh, and I thought, you know, that's really true because I'm fascinated, you know, with everything from like, you know, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and, yeah. you know, just all the ways that people um, engineer, you know, like on the slope. It's crazy, you know, like building an ice road, yeah. you know, to, to, to build a gravel road. You have to build an ice road or to get a drill rig yeah. to the exploration location. It takes an ice road or, you know, somebody that, you know, some ingenious person had to come up with that idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's something I think, and, and that goes right into the, the things that I wanted to, to talk about too, is just when you're working in this type of an industry, I mean, you, you are, you're trying to capture something that is so unique but you're also trying to show the the realness of that in that setting because you know it, it it's not just taking uh, a, a large piece of machinery out onto a, a major highway and 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 drilling somewhere i mean you're, you're creating the access just to get to where they need to go taking into account that they need to you know preserve the land that's underneath this ice road and they can only go certain times of the year i mean it, is that a I mean, when you were getting into that, was that kind of a daunting task to, to feel like you had to convey this to someone that's never been there and give them a feeling of what that place is like? You know, I don't know if I would use the word daunting, but challenge for sure. Yeah. And um, actually, it's interesting that you say that because inside my head, what is going on when I'm actually taking pictures mm -hmm. is how am I going to illustrate this? Yeah. How do I illustrate the complexity? How do I illustrate the care and the concern for the environment when we have these big, ginormous pieces of equipment mm -hmm. that um, look like they could be very damaging and destructing, but in fact they're not because of the, you know, mostly it's because of the layer of ice yeah. or some other, you know, protective surface that they put down, rig mats mm -hmm. or whatever. And, um, yeah, so, uh, but that is always the backstory in my head. And mm -hmm. I don't suppose there's any photographers out there that go, uh, we don't just set out to take pictures and then wait for something to kind of pop in front of our lens. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have an approach, uh, we have an agenda, 
yeah. um, whether we want to, and we have a bias, we're like reporters with mm -hmm. cameras. And so exactly. however we want to um, say that, but there's some, some context, you know, and that comes from your own personal frame of reference. Yeah. And so whatever your personal context is, is what you want to illustrate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know photographers that like to photograph like old mine sites or old right. abandoned places that uh, were not done properly. And they mm -hmm. like to, they like to show that um, because that's w what their frame of reference yeah. is. But of course I disagree very strongly with that approach yeah. because those, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, so for me, it's how it's mm. how it's a good story. Yeah. I'm always yeah. trying to, to tell the good story. Right. Yeah. And that's such a such an interesting perspective to take on, it, especially for for going out to these, you know, very remote, remote locations. You're you're around. I mean, uh, even it, for you going into that, I mean, you have to kind of have a tough skin as well because you're not only in environments that are really challenging with the cold weather, you know, a lot of times that, you know, on the slope and can be sub-zero temperatures, you're trying to work, but you're also working with, with people that are used to being tough and, you know, working on oil rigs and not that ladies can't interact with, you know, tough guys on the slope. And obviously you've shown that, but is that, uh, was that something you kind of had to get used to or was it just keeping your right perspective when you go out on these places and, and keeping your positive you know, approach to that, or like, how how do you kind of handle that? Those kind of difficult situations. Not that they always are difficult, but well, I think. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment that I have tough skin because I don't, <laughs> and I'm not adventurous. <laughs> yeah, you can you can take it though. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, yeah uh, but I'm like a, I'm a huge chicken. And I'm very timid, and I'm like afraid of everything. You wouldn't, if you look at your catalog I mean, or your like calendars and magazine. That's the last thing I would think about. And you see these rough landscapes and the oils and the you know gas or just the pipes and stuff. This heavy machinery. I mean, that's uh, that's not what I would think. But uh, you know, I've been around you enough. It's like, yeah, there are limits, though. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's because uh, I don't get there under my own steam. So yeah. if I'm with someone else and they're taking me there, well, then I'm certainly willing to go. Yeah. But I'm not like you. You know, I'm not like m climbing mountains <laughs> and scaling cliffs and cliff jumping. And, uh, you know, I am I am not that adventurous person. But um, I always I like to tell people like, you know, certain mountains and stuff. It's like, well, if they put a handrail to the top, I might right. go. Yeah. Or, but really, Some I'd steps. rather just go in the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Know, just yeah. take me in the helicopter. Well, having access to the right tools to get to those locations, I, I mean, tell us about some of some of those things that you have access to or, or use to get into these crazy places over the top of the ocean, shooting, you know, rigs out there or ships or something. I mean, what are what are some of those modes of transportation? Well, I, you know, I get to ride in uh, lots of neat pieces of equipment that are actually quite foreign. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, just yesterday I was talking to a friend, and I was telling him about riding in a hovercraft. And to me, wow. a hovercraft, you know, and that's used on the North Slope in, the, in between seasons because in the open water they use a boat, and then mm -hmm. in the wintertime they make an ice road. But mm -hmm. in the breakup seasons then um, it's either a helicopter or a hovercraft or they have to come up with some way to get out to an Something island. To remove, or to remove the impact on the ground and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah, and so, but I always say that the hovercraft is like the magic carpet ride because <laughs> that's what it feels like. And yeah. I mean, to anybody listening, I would say if you ever have a chance <laughs> to go for a ride in a hovercraft, do it because yeah. it really feels like you're in a magic carpet. Wow. And they're super cool. And, you know, I have a client... And they deliver mail up the Cuscoquim River 
during breakup yeah. on a hovercraft. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a thing. It's it's the the company up on the North Slope used it for crew tam- transport to get the crew out to yeah. an island, but during a season when when they couldn't do it. And anyways, but I get I get to ride in uh, neat things like that and, and helicopters. And really quick, what, um, explain what because uh, if they've never been to Alaska, s- they either think it's ice and snow all of the time, <laughs> or or it's uh, you know, just just mountains and, and streams and all this kind of. So, what what is this breakup like? What what is that kind of time period? Oh wow! So breakup, um, it it occurs at different times in different parts of Alaska. So you know, our breakup uh, around South Central here, when it starts thawing out, basically. Yeah, the, the it starts thawing out, and that's spring to summer, like in uh, April or something. And then up north, it goes a little bit later. But what happens? Lots of interesting thing happens, but. Um, <laughs> Like yeah. the rivers up north, they get ice dams, so the rivers are completely frozen, frozen over, yeah, yeah. and then the ice starts to break up, and then it dams, and then it breaks, backs up, mm, and crea- and yeah. floods, and then, flood and, then yeah. and then it um, washes out again, and <coughs> so it is a tremendous. Uh, some of those rivers have tremendous forces, yeah, and uh, so there's not a lot of bridges up on the North Slope, but they're engineered. Uh, like crazy yeah. to withstand these big chunks of ice and then all the water that's coming out in the mountains. And then the tundra. Um, so the tundra is, you can't go on the tundra with anything unless it has a certain number of inches of uh, snow on top of it. Mm-hmm. And and then in the um, summertime, honestly, I don't know what the access is. I know you, you can use your feet, mm-hmm. but I don't yeah, know what el- else is. Very limited, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or two existing runways, or you know, well, then there's gravel infrastructure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, then yeah. there's gravel infrastructure, <coughs> and of course, you have to stay on the gravel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just a it's it's a crazy <laughs> access, you know, way well, around Alaska too. Uh, there's this other neat piece of equipment uh, called a rollagon that Bechtel mm-hmm. actually um, came up with uh, for the desert uh, for North Africa oil. Development oh, over there. And that's so it, where it started. It yeah. was originally made for going across sand dunes and in the desert. Mm-hmm. And I am not exactly sure when they when they came to Alaska, but I think it was about the seventies. It could have been the sixties. Yeah. But there's so few of them that um, if you want, if you need a part for it, someone has to make it. Oh wow! And wow. anyway, so one of my clients uh, had this whole fleet of these rollagons, and they uh, they're called low. T- low tire pressure vehicles they have a name like that but the uh-huh. tires aren't called tires they're called bags and they have a video they That's used to show what of they are. Yeah. like <laughs> running over a person and the per- because it, it had z- it had such low wow. ground pressure that's what it was low ground and pressure these are big vehicles oh, I huge. Mean, that's a lot they're of huge. weight yeah <laughs> and they're another thing that's really cool to uh, that I spend a lot of time and you know and they go like i don't know maybe 7 or 8 miles an hour mm-hmm. so you're in them it's it's very rare to go for anywhere that's less than like 7 or 10 hours yeah and they would transport pieces of like a drill rig or whatever mm-hmm. the support equipment that they needed to build the ice pad yeah and get so out like big light light pressure balloon tires basically that just soften up the impact yeah and yeah wow and that's crazy but they <laughs> call them bags yeah. yeah yeah but they're and they're wow. super fun to photograph because they're so weird looking and they're um, did they have those when we were up on the slope they were doing the slow moving the uh the seismic stuff or not the ones reading it but there was a, a set of three vehicles that were driving and then setting off the impacts. No, no, those no. were um, <coughs> those were the vibe trucks. 
Yeah, for yeah, the seismic, the, yeah, the and they snow, had yeah. um, tracks that I'm not exactly sure uh, mm. what, but they don't use they didn't use the rollagons for that. Yeah. Those are, but just, those are also kind of weird. Yeah, I did a shoot for BP a uh, couple months ago, three months ago, and they were doing exploration and they had those five trucks and, um, but yeah. there again, that's like technology. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the imp- they they do more with one vibe truck instead of three. And oh. so it's just less less things traveling on the tundra, yeah. even though they're track vehicles right. and you know there's snow to protect it. Yeah. But it's um, it's just another part of how technology is shrinking the footprint for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And, and so when we were up there. Um, I got to to go along on a trip with you. Uh, it's been a couple years ago now, um, and this was, I think it was in March, right? So yeah. it, was, it was right in the. It's still very cold, still very uh, full of full of snow, and and we went up there to to shoot for, um, I mean, one main company, but then shot a few other, you know, I think f- some photos for a few other trucks and stuff. Just as you're, as you're there, the and con- yeah, the construction and, uh, and support country companies, in addition yeah. to the, the main company that was doing the exploration, yeah, and yeah. we got to f- fly. And do the aerials together. Yeah, and yeah. So doing aerials from a from a plane, which is not as ideal as the helicopter, no. but it does end up being cheaper. And I think uh, you're, you're probably used to it by now. And you would think I would be after spending a lot of times in planes. But after that trip, I actually my I, my head didn't feel all that great from because we basically just had to bank around on one side of the plane and pick a good window that was clean to shoot out of and basically just rotate around this <laughs> these exploration sites multiple times and and you would go and take photos and then I would switch and shoot video and and um yeah just I think going in that position for for an extended period of time was just kind of yeah it's it still gets to me a little bit in some of those uh, uh Well and you're flights. in the back of the plane. Well I have a couple of funny plane stories. Well, but years ago when I was shooting, um, this was when I still had film, right? Mm-hmm. And so film, you only get 36 pictures, and you got to swap your um, film out. Yeah. So you just tell the pilot, you know, go fly wherever because <coughs> I don't want to make them stay in a steep bank or something because yeah. it's usually they got their flaps down. It's kind of tricky flying yeah, for them. Sure. Um, but there was one plane in particular, and it had a pretty good photo window, but there w- they had to take the seat out for some reason, so I had to sit on a bucket. <laughs> and so I'd be back there sitting on a bucket, you know, and like sometimes I'm levitating and sometimes I'm like sliding this way and that. Oh, gosh. And I'm trying my darndest to stay put on my bucket. It was either that or the floor, but for some reason I found the bucket more comfortable even though I was like sliding around yeah, a little bit. Going <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So that was the bucket story. And then um, a couple years ago, uh, I was out. Uh, so in the otter, the window opens because I always try to get a window that opens. And mm-hmm. uh, well, and part of the reason that we're in air. Uh, fixed wing in the wintertime is because they don't need helicopters because right. they have the ice roads, right? Yeah. And so the helicopters all go south for the winter. It's very difficult to come up sure, with a helicopter. So that's why we end up in mm-hmm. fixed wing, which is not ideal. Gotcha. Oh, but okay. this one had a the front window open, and so I would uh, sit in the co-pilot seat to take pictures. Well, the, the client had wanted me to run some video because you weren't mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And I said, all I have is my iPhone and it's not going to be great, but okay, if you just want like a little clip or <coughs> something, I can do it. Yeah. And so um, I'm positioning myself in the window and I'd just been taking pictures with my 35 millimeter digital camera, which is pretty heavy and solid, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I bring out my little iPhone and I literally move it a half an inch. Poof. 
away it went down the tundra. It got. It flew out the window. Yeah, it got you caught in it? the in the slipstream there, and it just like because it's just <laughs> a little like it's right oh, there. Oh yeah, as soon as you put it out the window, and then just yeah, and I didn't even think of it because I've been <coughs> using my big camera, which wasn't subject to that. And it was oh, my birthday, and my man. phone was blowing up with birthday wishes. And oh no! Yeah, so that went that. And and it was just gone. I mean, it oh, was out, it was out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. yeah, it's in a million pieces oh. somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, gosh, I, yeah. Anyway, that was my. And then I had some, I've had many interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, for I mean, because how many years have you been doing this now? Well, I've been t- taking pictures on the North Slope since 1989. Wow. But I've been a photographer for longer than that. I've mm-hmm. been a photographer for 35 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, I started when I was 12, right? I right. told you that, that yeah. I, I knew when I was 12 that I wanted to be a photographer. And, and why w- why was that? I mean, it just early on, w- did you see someone that w- that was doing it that just sounded really interesting or you just liked? Did you take a photo? Cro- or like what, what, what draw y- drew you to that? It's a odd, This is an odd story. Um, I had no influences, and I just remember waking up one day and saying that I was going to be a photographer. And at the time, I didn't think about it, but it took a couple years, and I... Th- I realized that I had a gift for it, and mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, and I believe that God gave me that gift. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, I think he gives us all different gifts. Yeah, and exactly. So I was given this gift, and it, uh, I'd honestly, I had, had no awareness of any other photographers. But as soon as I made the decision, then I got very interested, and I got on the yearbook when I was in the eighth grade, and then yeah. was on the yearbook all in high school and started uh, my local college had a program that you could take uh, college classes as a mm-hmm. high school student. Mm-hmm. So I started studying there. I'd already taken all their classes by the time I graduated from high school. Oh, okay. So, but I started with a very good photography instructor that was very foundational mm. and uh, I, st- I still stay in touch with him Nice. and after uh. all these years and, um, but he laid a really good foundation. I think it's good to have a tradition of a very traditional background in photography sure. A lot of, like, back in the 70s when I first started, it was all black and white lab work. A little bit, you know, I had a semester of color lab work, just enough to Mm -hmm. know that I didn't want to do that. (laughs) So my background is actually not in taking photos. It's in the processing processing. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I came to Alaska, then I worked at the Frontiersman newspaper in Wasilla. And I started as their darkroom tech. And I ran Mm. the process camera and the darkroom. And then um, they asked me to start taking pictures, and then I became a features photographer for them. Yeah. And then I started my own business in 1984. Wow. And yeah. then I did everything from, you know, cars to weddings. I never did babies. Yeah. So <laughs> I get, that's a big thing now, but I never did babies. I did weddings. And then mm-hmm. um, and I didn't hate weddings i just didn't like the fact that they took every weekend of my summer yeah <laughs> so after one summer of not getting to do anything with my family on the weekends mm-hmm. i was like i i can't do that anymore yeah but i i frankly enjoyed weddings and again mm-hmm. that was back i mean i shot a hasselblad and mm-hmm. i had uh, two backs or three backs from my hasselblad one held 12 pictures those are called 120 and then uh, one held 24 pictures and that was 220 so, I mean, wow. compare that to wedding photographers today that'll, you know, come Shoot through 3,000 pictures or something. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. you had to think very long and hard before you trip the shutter when you're only mm. taking 12 pictures. And then you have to swap the back on your camera. Yeah. So how many – so you just go through the two um, 
accent or how many no you could reload you can re- I mean, you can reload oh mm-hmm. yeah but yeah, it, right. it, t- it takes a minute to reload right. so you basically have them ready I d- already yeah i actually had three backs but you know the, to switch a back was super quick okay but i only had one camera that i yeah. used at a time now i shoot with two cameras yep. um just be- instead of switching lenses i mean used to be i would switch lenses and now i just switch cameras yeah yeah gotcha and that's I feel like, and and I've heard other people say this as well, but when you come from that type of a background in photography, it seems like um, it definitely changes your perspective. I mean, obviously you adapt to the newer technology and those other things make things easier, but is it true that it's still kind of in the back of your mind of that type of approach that, okay, I need to make this shot count. It's not just spray and pray. You're, you're putting a lot more thought in and, and art into each and every shot. And has that had an impact, you think, on just moving, having that base starting off? Oh, on? absolutely. And after mm. coming from that background, then when I switched to, I actually for maybe like the first five years of being a professional photographer, mm-hmm. I hardly shot any color. I, yeah. I was mostly black and white or, oh, you know, I yeah. do some color film. But then when I sh- started shooting commercially, I, I started shooting color slide film, color transparency, mm. and it is very unforgiving. Yeah. And you have to get it right. Film has, uh, I mean, negative film has uh, quite a wide latitude, mm-hmm. and, and you can make a lot of adjustments when you make the print. Mm-hmm. But uh, transparency film, not it doesn't have as much of a latitude, and oh. you really have to be really right on in your exposures Mm -hmm. and so i got um very good at figuring out what you know what scenes required what you know like if i needed to overexpose or underexpose or something Mm -hmm. and that is still in my head to this day yeah and and this is something that i do that most professionals don't do is that i shoot jpegs Mm. i don't shoot in raw unless i think the situation is going to warrant it Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that um, because I don't shoot in RAW and I shoot in JPEG, it's very similar to shooting transparency film because it's not as forgiving really? because you don't start yeah. out with the latitude that you do in RAW. Yeah. So any mm-hmm. professional that's listening to this will be like, well, she doesn't shoot in RAW. That's crazy. Like, who <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, why people pissed but, off about that. <laughs> but just the type of shooting that I do. Yeah. Um, and, and again, transitioning from shooting uh, color transparency to jpeg it's it's pretty similar yeah and i haven't really had any problems with my images or you know mm-hmm. with file quality or size or anything i mean i have really? many pictures some yeah. are on display in houston that i've never even seen they're like 15 feet long wow so i mean the files still come in plenty big <coughs> but yeah. I, that's my understanding is that i'm just missing out on that but yeah and so do you think it's with uh is it more of just a perception that you have to have raw because it's the best quality possible and you don't get enough information in JPEG? Or is it just the style that people go for that requires more editing, which is why they shoot in that, to get the maximum amount of, of latitude to work with? Because, of you know, let's say with a lot of landscape photographers for layering different things and shooting, mixing sunrise, the suns, you know, and all these different things, is that, do you think it's more um, the technical side of the photographer that needs that? Or is it more... Do you think it's kind of a perception that just, oh, you have to shoot that, that's required? Well, I, I mean, it could be both, but I I honestly think that it is better probably to shoot in raw. Mm-hmm. But I'm always in a hurry. 
Yeah. I, well, and you're shooting a lot of photos too. I shoot I mean, a lot of photos. Space is an issue. Your travel. I mean, it's and and like you said, for for how it's being delivered, it it you know needs to be within a certain parameters that they require. And if they're not needing you know that type of of, of file or, or or basis or um and because the um do you feel um because even when I'm going and and I, I like to shoot a lot of landscape stuff when I'm just shooting my own content and not necessarily just for um you know a project or a client or something like that and and just recently i've started getting into where i would you know layer shots with different exposures and stuff so do you still do that very very much if you're shooting say a a rig that's on a landscape that needs you know various exposures or are you able to find kind of more of that middle ground so it doesn't require as much editing afterwards (coughs) Or do you find I that you end up getting be- into that side of, of, of your photography, or well, is it usually not? Now required? I have to confess about my limited Photoshop skills. <laughs> so, uh, and I do always have an assistant that's way better in Photoshop than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about layering. I often shoot photos, um, multiple, you know, if I think yeah. it's going to, like, this is a pretty amazing picture. I need to b- capture this in these different sizes mm-hmm. so that it can be layered. And then often when it comes right down to it, I don't layer it. I just find which one yeah. I think is the best one and, yeah. you know, dodge or burn or whatever you need to do mm-hmm. in Photoshop. And then, mm-hmm. um, but I, um, I, I guess I'm pretty journalistic in my approach. Yeah. And yeah. I recently, well, just this last weekend, we were down in um, Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe Mm -hmm. and there was a photographer there and his work was amazing and uh, he had this one picture in particular that was these penguins in uh, the South Pole and the gallery manager told me it was 20 pictures that he'd put together and that it didn't really look like that that he had taken 20 pictures just in a big large panoramic so it was square but he had layered it and mm-hmm. the focal lengths and he'd put, oh, you know, yeah. like stacking, this. Stacking focus and stuff yeah, and probably. All that. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this penguin wasn't really there for that picture. And that these penguins weren't really right. all here at the Kinda same time. Kind of like a time. lightning photo and or something. They'll layer a bunch yeah. to get all the different well, parts in and there. And there was a time when that would be an issue of, because uh, I remember when digital was first coming out. Mm-hmm. And again, coming from more of a journalistic background, it's like truth in advertising. Yeah. You know, we want to. We want to record what's truthful. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe we want it to look beautiful, but yeah. we also want it to be real. And if it's not yeah. real, then we want to say it's not real. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of photographers that do, you know, layer things or do uh, photo uh, composites mm-hmm. and stuff. But but everybody knows that, and it's right. part of the beauty of the picture is what yeah. they chose to put together. More of the artistic. Um, but now I see that line is blurring. Because Very. people are taking pictures and or like this gentleman was taking these pictures and they're beautiful pictures. They're putting them all together, but there doesn't seem to be that moral argument anymore or yeah. it doesn't even get brought up on does that need to be disclosed that that's not really yeah. what yeah. exact that that wasn't one shutter click. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it is a very hard line and. And I had this discussion with another um, photographer friend of ours over a long road trip. We just kind of dove into this topic because we had different opinions on what what was true enough to, to, to life with, like you said, having to say that it wasn't, you know, a real shot versus a, um, a composite or even just a, a, you know, altered photo and stuff. And And for me, it's kind of one of those things I feel that 
a it is a it's up to the photographer to decide how how they want i mean with their style of work i mean however they want to do that they want to cut different sh- photos and you know and and design it their own way i mean that's that's their own pr- you know prerogative it's it's a creative art thing but um but the the side that i take it to and I, and i agree as well to where if if it's a a photo that's been altered that isn't exact like isn't what it was normally then then i usually say that like okay this was multiple photos layered together because i feel like the hard part is is the the person that's not a photographer that's a consumer of photos they get a false perception of a say they want to get into photography and they want to pick up a camera and start take like oh yeah if i bought this really nice camera i'm going to take a photo just like that well it's like but they don't understand what went into that of that well that was uh various different shutter you know, lengths that were layered together and focal lengths. And, and I feel like it, it doesn't, it should be, of course, how you can you police it? I mean, you can't com- police it, you know, specifically of like, okay, at what level do you say this was Photoshopped or whatever? That's the general term. But because people ask us like, oh, wow, did you photo? It's like, well, it was light roomed. Like I adjusted the lighting and stuff like that. I mean, it obviously didn't look exactly like that, but that was the scene and the cap camera is going to capture a lot more than what your eyes can see with the Northern lights, you know, and it's like, Oh, does it look like that in the sky? It's like, man, normally not unless it's really, <laughs> really strong out. Right. Like that's definitely more, that's a 30 second exposure. But the side that I go with that is like, well, there are some things I feel like technically in the camera that I'm okay with showing that like a long exposure on a waterfall that's really misty and slow. You know, that's, that's a, uh, a various way of capturing something it's i don't feel like it's a false perception when you have a sky that's really dark and you're brightening it up you can see the stars and stuff like all the stuff is there it's just a matter of how you are going to edit this show and other people would just you know shoot it as is and that's and that's that so i feel like that level but the, then i have other you know people that i know that you know they're more in the side of like okay i don't like this this uh, um you know, this, this setup in this scene. So I just want to change it to make sure it, it looks the way that I want it versus taking a different photo to make it, you know, change your perspective or your lens or something to make that, you know, um, that composition better. And so it's definitely a hard line. And I, I try to find kind of a, a middle line in there to where I'm not altering to where it's going to be completely, you know, false when they, when they put it out there. Cause then, Again, it they default. Oh, that was just Photoshop. I was like, well, actually, it's that's such a generic term too. Well, yeah, you know? the, the issue really, well, you know, <clears throat> I think the the terminology is it's like, was that an enhancement or was that an right. alteration? Right. And did yeah. that really, you know, was it a sub- substantive change that it, you know, somehow misrepresented <clears throat> the scene or something? I mean, you could get into all kinds of twisted yeah. ways of thinking about it and. One of the organizations that I belong to, the only photo one that I belong to, ASMP, American Society for Media Photographers, they're always try mm. to be on the cutting edge of these right. kind of moral arguments. Yeah. And um, but I remember early on, like way super early on, one of the things that they said was they were they were trying to come up with like a mark. Yeah. Like almost like a little chop mark or something. Yep. And they said that they felt that photos were gonna be so digitally altered or enhanced or whatever you want to call yeah. it. That the ones that instead of indicating if it had been marked, I mean, if it had been altered, Mm -hmm. that in the minority were going to be the ones that had not. Mm. And that instead they should reserve the mark for pictures that had not been altered anyway. And I mean, Mm -hmm. and that was uh, 15 years ago that 
that they said that, and so that's how far ahead they were thinking because of mm. wh- exactly what you're saying is really yeah. what we're talking about right now. And so I don't. Yeah. I so mean, that was the baseline, not the 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 start line. They say of yeah, where that starts. It was like they could when see does it get far enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. We could. I I think for beauty and scenery photos and stuff, I don't think there's much of a moral argument there. Yeah. But at the same time, then you think about pictures that are in the media, and it really cause calls into question, like. What is it that we're seeing? Is it really what it is? You know, yeah. it's just really been enhanced, and I don't know. But that's mm-hmm. kind of a rabbit trail we probably shouldn't. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, geeking out on the on oh, the that's photography a total, side. That's yeah, a moral a whole, conversation. That's yeah, that's a whole nother thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's it it does come down to because as you look around at photography, and it's it's a very general space that has a lot of different um, you know professions, that has a lot of different techniques and styles and 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 those that have their own i mean you can look at certain photos and just like oh yeah that's that's this person because you know this type of coloring or this style this lighting or, or what that thing or presets <laughs> yeah i, mean, that's, I that's look at it i'm like, oh, that's like their oh yeah presets. they just put the same mm-hmm. and and you know it and it the the difference now i think is too is because i don't think it's all bad in the sense that there is a a place in a in a, in a need for certain things that that have a a similar look and feel and, and they've been able to make it to to convey a certain thing like you look at this whole person's feed and they all have the same light hue or a little reddish tint or they're all like you know uh, uh evening light feeling and you can get a and, and that's that's the way they choose to either it's you know just editing or shooting at certain times and and but it creates a, a sensation and a feeling that's just all uniform and it accomplishes what they need to do because it's it's emphasizing towards this product or you know whatever the the end goal is. I mean, there's such a variety of well, yeah. And then you have me, perceive it. Little Miss Traditional. <coughs> that, um, I mean, I suppose if I could figure out how to make a preset, I would. And I I am just so yeah. stuck in uh, making things look like they look. You know, yeah. like even on Instagram, I hardly ever use uh, in, um a filter yeah you know because yeah. I'm, I'm like i just that's hashtag how no look. filter <laughs> yeah i do that's that's one of the i mean i don't know how people hashtag it's like i i i, <laughs> I every time i get into that i'm like oh i should make a post and then and then i stress out about the hashtag because i come up with like two so yeah. i'm like well i guess that's better than none <laughs> so here we go yeah 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 well and i think that's that's uh, a really cool perspective as well is just that to for you, you know, that hasn't been the breaking part. I mean, you're well into the time of shooting digital, that Instagram's been around for a long time, or like in, in general speak anyway, like this stuff is 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 pretty big out there. And yet, you know, I have other people say, I was like, oh, that's the only way, like I have to get found on this thing. You know, it's like, I have to, to, to fight with all this competition. And and obviously there's there's attention and there's space for that. Like there, that that is a path you can take but it's not a required path. And I think that's what's really cool with what you've been able to do. Obviously, it took so many years to be established, you know, in what you're doing, but you haven't faded away as all these new things have come up. I mean, you're still still relevant and still busy and still having your business. I mean, I think that's uh that's really cool to see that that's that's not a breaking point, you know. You think, "Oh, if I don't stay relevant with the stuff, I'm just going to fall away and and no one's going to see my stuff anymore. Yeah, you know, although I am a so I'm a freelance assignment photographer mm-hmm. is basically what I am. I I basically don't shoot stock. Yeah. And uh, I've often wondered if my business model 
is going to go the way of the dinosaur, you know, assignment photography. Because so mm. many people are just like these lifestyle shooters and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. like they're creating content. Uh, sometimes they just collaborate with other people and then they're all just doing it um, like part of this new sharing thing, you mm -hmm. know, like the interior designer and the photographer and the mm -hmm. architect and the <coughs> bedding people. Right. And they're all kind of doing it for each other. That's a form of stock photography mm -hmm. that right. they can sell those images or right. you know it's not really like it's assignment photography like mm -hmm. me you know i need somebody to call me up and say i need you to go take pictures i mean yeah. i just did that recently and so just about the time that i get all depressed about it and think that it's going away then i get really busy with all these assignments <laughs> and i'm like wait a minute yeah so people still need pictures taken for their specific industry for their particular company yep. they still want unique images yep. and i think when people call me it's because they know that i have a particular way that i shoot all of us do mm -hmm. and so there's a need for what i do that they w they want to show whatever their business is you yeah. know if it's the railroad if it's a mining company if mm -hmm. it's a a marine mm -hmm. transportation company that yeah. there's something that about the way that I shoot that they want mm -hmm. to have that type of picture. Sure. And so f I think we're fortunate that as long as there the individual companies are going to need pictures because mm -hmm. again a few years ago there was this kind of a um I don't know what the word was, but I mean, it's kind of this negative attitude towards assignment photography, like we're, we were going to go the way of the dinosaurs. And then what happened with all the, as, as many pic people as there are taking pictures, the need for content increased. Yeah. And I don't think anybody really thought about that. The, the social media is this insatiable beast mm -hmm. and that as more and more companies get on board with it, and granted, many of them are reluctant. I mean, mm -hmm. many of my clients are just like, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> no, social media, but, but yeah. once they go that way to tell their story, mm -hmm. as other traditional forms of advertising are not really relevant to today's mm -hmm. audiences, and yeah. we used to advertise in a magazine. Well, that magazine's not published anymore, mm -hmm. so now what do we do? Mm -hmm. Or same thing with the newspaper. Yep. So they're going to go to social media, and once you... Once you start in social media, then you got to feed the beast. Yeah. So in yeah. a way, I'm optimistic, whereas maybe three or four years ago, I was very pessimistic mm -hmm. because of where we were going. Because with social media, you can use lower quality photos. There's no reason to have a 30 megabyte yeah. image. You yeah. know, like Beatback was all about <coughs> like how high a quality you can get. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they realize that you don't always get what you need from an iPhone. Yep. Or your engineer in the field with a digital yep. camera isn't getting you a usable picture yeah. that you that is telling your story. Right. So right. so today I'm actually quite optimistic about where things are going, and that I mm -hmm. don't think assignment photography is going to go the way of the dinosaur, at least yep. not today. Yeah. So that we yeah. can still stay in business and have people hire us to take these pictures to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree, and it's it's. Um, it, those that that don't keep that correct perspective to to stay, you know, in a sense, you have to be aware of those things, and not necessarily you have to change everything you're doing, but being aware and how to um, approach the clients in that you know way, knowing that okay, they could go this way and just have someone do that, but this is what's going to end up there, and but if you hire you to do the shoot, then this is this is the kind of thing you're going to get, and I feel like. Some of that uh, comes back to those 
at least for the type of things that you shoot, the things that are difficult or un you know unobtainable for those that haven't done it before or know because there's a lot of logistics involved. I mean that you can't just show up and do a collaboration shoot with all these different companies, especially in the the settings that you're no, in because you, you, you need access, yeah. you need no, the people, right. the logistics. Access is huge. And what's um, I mean, obviously, I'm sure a lot of the shoots are very different in every side that you go into, but uh, I would say on a uh, um, on a typical shoot that you're going to do, say with a, um, you know, shooting uh, a rig over water. I mean, what, what are some of the things that you end up going through and how, you know, how much time are you usually spending before that shoot to figure out, like, say you see a, a photo in your, in your book, um, that's, you know, of a rig going up, a, a you know, on the ocean or something like that. Like, that didn't just happen and jump on a plane no, and go well, and do actually, it. Actually, I can tell you about <laughs> just this last weekend. Um, I uh, it was for a, m- a marine uh, company, yeah, and uh, they wanted uh, photographs of their barge and mm-hmm. their operations in Southeast Alaska. And marine ops are some of the more difficult because yeah. of you're subject to all kinds of things. And then my experience has been many times is that you wait for everything to you know my schedule, the weather the barge scheduled to coincide only to have it go from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. where it's too dark. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. But, no, it's true. I mean, we started trying to set that up in April, late April. Wow. And so it took all, I mean, it took over six weeks for it to get to even where I could start thinking about, like, this is all going to, work with mm-hmm. again you know all the moving parts you know you have to have the helicopter availability you have to have the ship availability you have to have daylight and yeah. you know you have to be able to get there and thankfully we're in alaska in summertime so you got a lot of daylight yeah i mean but that was in <laughs> southeast and it does get dark there at 10 o'clock yeah i think the longest though when years ago i was uh, taking pictures of a uh, sea lift on the north slope and what's a sea lift oh a sea lift a sea lift is a large um, it's when they bring in really big things. About mm-hmm. So, like, for instance, all the facilities in Prudhoe Bay, those all came in. I mean, they're, si- they're the size of a large building. Like, imagine, like, a large 10-story building, like one of the towers mm-hmm. of the Captain Cook Hotel in downtown mm-hmm. Anchorage. And they put them on a 400-foot barge and or 300-foot barge or somewhere in there. Yeah. And they uh, have <coughs> special brackets and everything. They weld them all to the deck of the barge. And then uh, usually there's two or three barges in a row, and then they bring them in, and they have a very small window of time uh, yeah. to bring them in um, to the North Slope, and then they the walk tides them Tides before things start freezing as well. and or Correct. Just, yeah. yeah. Plus, interestingly, like in around Anchorage, <coughs> it's completely off the subject, but we have the second highest tides in the world, you know, the yeah. Cope and Cook Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, on the North Slope, they have tiny little tides. Like six inch tides. Wow. Yeah. And so, wow. and then so they, and it's super shallow for a long time. And so, in this particular instance, it was a, b- a big honking drill rig that was coming in. And they wanted me to photograph it, you know, like coming into the dock and being offloaded and everything. Mm-hmm. I was there for three weeks. Three weeks? Three <laughs> weeks. I waited for this thing to be able, with the tide, because the water's so shallow, the wind would blow the wrong way. And it would literally blow the water out so they didn't have enough water. So he would have to wait for a window wow. to come in because you've only got this six inches of variance. And then they didn't have much um, uh, water, I mean, because yeah. of the draft. You know, maybe the, the ocean up there is maybe only six or eight feet deep. Wow. Or 10 or 12 feet deep. But yeah. it's really shallow for a long way. Yeah. So, I mean, 
Anyway, so I was up there, and it took three weeks uh, to get that uh, barge to come in. And, yeah, and no, to it's, get that it's photo. tons of... Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. I just... Uh, I have a really good friend that's a, quite a good photographer herself. And she was like, Jude, I could never do what you do. She goes, I just... <laughs> I can't... I, she goes, I just couldn't, A, show up and not know anything or anybody and start yeah. taking pictures. And... And to my schedule, like, literally changes every day. <laughs> and so to have, like, yeah. you have to... I feel like that's where we relate a lot, to. Yeah, <laughs> so you just have to have this kind of fluid <coughs> approach and not get your panties in a bunch, and it's like, this is just how it's yeah. going to be. But if you're not that kind of person, then mm -hmm. it's this is not a, a good field for you to be if you have to have certainty, because yeah. nothing is certain. I mean, mm -hmm. literally what I do is I show up on a location, I meet a total stranger... I usually, I mean, I usually have to spend at least a day, but sometimes I'm with that total stranger three or four days. And mm -hmm. and we go to places, you know, and, and I need them to cooperate and help me mm -hmm. to get where I need to go and get, get the right access people. access onto places mm -hmm. and all it's that. It's a whole thing. Oh, and just this last winter, I had this lovely little lady, and uh, she, I had a bus. It was a job for Conoco oh on their yeah, exploration, and about, yeah. I'd never had a bus before. I thought I had really arrived. <laughs> I had one of those special little like van type buses. Yeah, I took over. I took the whole thing. You know, I had a seat for my Arctic gear and a, a seat for my out, tripod yeah. and my lighting stuff, and I nice. had a seat <laughs> for my uh, other camera gear, and then I had a seat for myself, and mm -hmm. as we had a seat for uh, snacks <laughs> and. And, and all set and up <laughs> and she was very that lady was intrepid and yeah. she took her job very seriously and i was with her for a whole week it was just great wow and she's wow. she's anywhere i am supposed to take you anywhere you want to go and i was like i've been doing this for yes. over 30 years <laughs> and i finally arrived yeah <laughs> i get a bus Can i request this every time mm -hmm. like this is great service <laughs> uh, and she was so great we're still we're actually friends now it was great nice yeah 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 i feel like it, and and that's um, having those logistics and things in place on a shoot like that really can make, cause, cause I mean, what's, what's the coldest you've actually been out taking photos in? Like what, what's, so what, kind, of extremes, well, with what kind of extremes, well, yeah, add it all in. Like what, what's, what's the most well, extreme? The worst one I can still remember to <coughs> this day cause I was so cold and I shot film. This was how long ago that was. Wow. And they told me it was a good 45 below ambient and it was windy. And they said and with the wind chill, oh it was like 80 below. And, and you I took photos in this? Yeah, I took photos in that. And I just remember, and it was not fun. But <laughs> they were, the photos were great. I mean, it's wow. a, well, Did it didn't even make it in the book? Were there any of those shoots from that time frame? No, because I, no, those, none of, not those particular, not that particular yeah. event. Yeah. But you know, as well as I know, that good photos don't come out of nice weather. No, no. no. You gotta this have. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Of shooting in Alaska and other places. Gosh. If it's yeah. good weather, it's like just. Yeah. Just oh, it's beautiful, sunny outside, and it's like that. That's the worst yeah. for photos. I'm taking a nap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, when I was just down in Lake Tahoe this weekend. Yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful place, and every day it was like blue sky, sunshine, mm -hmm. and I was like completely uninspired. And finally, one afternoon, these clouds start rolling in, and I'm like, I'm going to go take some pictures now. <laughs> yeah, it's and, and, and to those that, that don't realize that from taking photos, it's like, yeah, you, you, you see ones that are very memorable, and you have, there's, there's crazy cloud formations, there's rain coming down, snowflakes in the air. I mean, you kind of, 
don't realize it, but you can you can feel the the emotion that much more because it's like, man, I feel just cold just looking at this. Or I mean, it's it's super you know hot and steam's coming up. Or I mean, just have these these natural effects that happen in extreme conditions. And I mean, I think that that seems like it really helps, especially in Alaska, because we have a lot of extremes. Oh yeah, one of the unique things that happens, uh, particularly in the Arctic, is um, if you cut if you cut through the ice for whatever reason, or if there's a hole in the ice. Um, so the water's warmer than the air. So if the air is 30 below That's and crazy. the water's <laughs> 30 above, yeah. Yeah. and then you get all this cool, like, steamy, you know. Have you done that for a shoot, like, to get an effect like that? Or is this just Oh, no, no, happens? oh, no. Are you kidding? I mean, I mean the <laughs> ice is six foot thick. Yeah, but, I sure, mean, I sure. photographed, okay. like, for instance, when they were building uh, North Star Island, an offshore island, and they used this big, kind of like a modified ditch witch piece of equipment, mm-hmm. and they uh, cut holes in the ice yeah. and then they excavated the ice out and dumped the gravel in mm-hmm. uh, to make the ice because the water again is very shallow so yeah. you know it's like 30 yeah. or 50 feet and that's six miles offshore so they just started dumping gravel in but mm-hmm. those are some super cool pictures and people look at them they're like what is going on here you know <laughs> they had a sauna like <laughs> they had a hot springs or something yeah, like well all this kind of lens steam coming up it's part of that sort of otherworldly yeah. experience you know with like the oversized and unique machinery yeah, and, and just this bleak landscape, but that it lends itself to such beauty. I mean, when we were shooting there, it was perfect because the, the, the sunset just lasts for forever, and you have this amazing light, and it changes from blues to pinks. and all. I mean, I, I, that was my first experience. I've been, I've been up that way in the summertime, but which surprisingly they wouldn't. People probably don't realize there's actually no snow and ice on the ground in the farthest north of Alaska in the dead of summer like and oh no i mean uh, everything melts away and yeah. it i mean i was up there and it was 70 degrees up on the the you know the mountains and hills up in the north part of alaska and then so despite some still popular belief it's not ice and snow across alaska even even no. uh, all times of the year <laughs> so no it well i mean there's permafrost that's underground yeah of course, and that, but that stays the, frozen yeah no it it, it, co- it goes to a complete thaw yeah, yeah. and it's uh i've actually seen it 80 I wish I would have taken the picture of the sign, you know. It was, it yeah, it's normally like 40 below in the winter. Yeah, it was at 82 degrees. Wow. Yeah, and that yeah. was, I, I think it was in early August. But, yeah, there's, um, it gets hot up there, actually. Yeah, yeah. and it's, uh, I mean, I think it's it's so unique because Alaska has so many different ecosystems across the, the place. And it seems like a lot of your stuff is on the North Slope and that type of part in the wintertime. But then you're down over the ocean, you know, in the bay in, in eastern Alaska, southeast Alaska. Oh, yeah, and, and southeast was so great because they had trees <laughs> and mountains. And so, of course, on the North Slope, there's no trees and there's no mountains. I mean, the Brooks Range are, what, yeah. 150 miles to the south. Yeah. And so it's flat as a pancake. And then in the wintertime, I remember the very first time I went up there, actually probably the first few times I went up there, I absolutely could not tell... Like when we, they were doing a project mm. uh, offshore. Mm-hmm. I could not tell when we left the land and when we were on the ocean, because wow. it was just flat and frozen. So yeah. everything's flat, frozen, and, and just white. goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But now since then, I've, I've come to see that there's places up there that have what we get all excited. We were like, oh, there's terrain, yeah, and because it actually you know has some variance in it or a little bit, but mostly it's flat and so with no trees. So basically, it's always just sky. Yeah. So if you have a bad sky, it's a rough day. Yeah. Because like down in Southeast, if it's a bad sky, well, we just don't have the sky in our picture. Yeah. We'll do something else, you yeah. know, unless the fog's really low, which 
mm-hmm. of course, is quite common down there, too. So, mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's been the biggest challenging thing in the Arctic. But when the light's good, I yeah. feel like I'm cheating, actually, <laughs> because I'm like, this light is just like, so I'm completely in love with that light up there, yeah. completely and totally. I basically live for February. <laughs> so February is my favorite winter month. All yeah. my girlfriends think I'm crazy because they're all like, I'm getting out of here. It's so cold. <laughs> I'm tired of winter. And I'm like, I can hardly wait to get to the Arctic That's because true. I love the light and I love, I love the low angles and I love the pinks and the blues. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like this really soft light. And I, I just, well, I mean, it's photography is all about the light. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And there's, um, especially when you have that to, like you said, make your job like cheating or make it that much easier. Um, I mean, it, and you're not having to work around so many other things and just, and then in an extreme environment that, that helps too, because you're doing all this logistics and you're hoping that uh, that window works just right when you have that small, you know, little, little space to be able to, to shoot something when it's passing a certain spot or. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And well, uh, I know part of this last winter, there was uh well, I mean, like a blow, for instance, blows or blows, right? You know, when you get the visibility blows, the snow blows all mm-hmm. around and stuff. Mm-hmm. But but I'm a still shooter. And of course, I'm always trying to make things look like they're moving or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of snow blowing across the ice road. Yeah. And that was like a super cool effect for something that normally when it's a blow, you stay inside because it's terrible. Right. But I stayed outside and got to photograph it and got some really cool pictures uh-huh. because of the way the um, – it's hard to use a tripod, though, because everything moves. Yeah. You know, you can't – like, to do a time exposure is pretty much out of the question because <laughs> yeah. you can't keep your cameras still right. and it's being buffeted. And it's just shaking. Yeah, yeah, like that's a – that's what I try, so. Yeah, and so we had um, – I was asking about the, the book. So for those that um, uh, don't know, so Judy – came out with a uh, uh, a photo book and it's been um how many years ago now when it came out five five years six. wow six years i'm yeah. sorry and i remember coming up here when you were working on it and trying to select you know the photos to go in there cuz you're going back over the several i mean gosh a bunch of years to find all the photos to pull from and stills and mo- a, a lot of it was was still was film you're pulling from right i mean some yeah. of the more recent stuff was digital but Almost um, the first, yeah, the first two chapters were film. So it's chronological. Um, yeah, so tell us about what the book, what, what's, what was the um, idea behind it? What, what was kind of, what's the, what is the book? Well, the book is called Arctic Oil, yeah. and I've been asked uh, many, many, many times uh, by people that work up there to make a book. Mm-hmm. And so I was always like, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, you know, it's expensive, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But then actually that's another thing that technology did was they made self-publishing a thing yeah. you know so i didn't have yep. to go find a book publisher i could just be uh, my own publisher mm-hmm. so i did find a printer um that to print it and hired my own designer to lay it out mm-hmm. and hired a photo editor because there's no way that i could pick out my own pictures <laughs> i got it into a big pile yeah. and let him do yeah. the rest of it which was super helpful but the main reason that i made the book was because everybody was requesting that i make a book mm-hmm. But um, just like what we've been talking about this whole time is that the Arctic is so unique yeah. and oil exploration is so unique and it's literally the lifeblood of Alaska's economy. It mm-hmm. supports our state mm-hmm. directly um, by uh, nine funds 90% of our government mm-hmm. and also directly in, you know, thousands of people work up there. Yeah. 
but nobody knows what it looks like, and you can't get there. I mean, you can drive the 800 miles mm-hmm. only to get to a guard track that says you can't come on, you can't come past yeah. here. You know, so nobody knows yeah. what it looks like, and everybody's got a brother, a husband, uh, you know, a son, an uncle yeah. that works up there. And mm-hmm. after their two week rotation, they don't want to come home and talk about things that no one's going to understand. Yeah. And so I made the book, and it's basically 20 years of me taking pictures of what it looks like um, for oil exploration and development mm-hmm. and production in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite stories was there was a young man uh, who worked for one of my customers, and he was in the mechanic shop, and I was taking pictures of him and um, his coworkers. And uh, he learned that I had made this book, Arctic Oil. Mm-hmm. And he got super excited because he had just, they carried it at the Prudhoe Bay store, right? Yeah. And he goes, oh, my gosh, I just bought a copy of your book from my grandpa in Nebraska because he wants to know about where I work and I can't explain it to him. Yeah. And wow. that pretty much sums up, you know, 90% of the comments that I get about it yeah. is that people... You cannot explain it. You know, all the interesting types mm-hmm. of vehicles that we've talked about. And yep. I mean, just basically everything we've discussed just mm-hmm. in this uh, short time is in the book. Yeah. That it's illustrated and, and not. And, and of course, when I took these pictures, they weren't. My intention was to not make a book, you know, mm-hmm. but they became yeah. a book. Yeah. And, and was it a, a uh, I guess, how, how long did it take from when you started putting things together till you had a final product like well, how long well i'm a procrastinator <laughs> so it took longer than it should have i mean i seriously knew i needed to make a book two years before i actually made the book mm-hmm. maybe longer uh, but then i finally had to have an accident riding my bicycle because remember i told you i'm not adventurous <laughs> and so i should not right. do these things right and so yeah. i crashed on my bicycle I ended up on crutches and I took it as a sign from God that I just needed to stop what I was doing and focus on my book. And it did. It got it brought me to a screeching halt. And uh, so once I did that, it took me six weeks for the editing and the design and and uh, to get it down to the printer and then another six weeks at the printer. Gotcha. So um, but I think you uh, to make a book, I think (coughs) a realistic time frame is like a year. Yeah, because they're they're mm. really a process. Yeah, and and so I see people to this day that of course have my book, and uh, and they say, well, when are you going to make another book? And I'm <laughs> like, well, I still have quite a few copies. It's had two yeah. printings. It's yeah. done well, right? Yeah. But I still have a lot left of my second printing, uh-huh. and nothing's changed. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe the people yeah. have changed up there, but I go up there, I yeah. still take pictures of the landscape, but mm-hmm. the nothing's same really changed. And so yeah. as long as it still looks like what it looks like, then I yeah. don't really feel. Compelled mm-hmm. to make another one. Yeah, no, it's you did did a really good job on. It. I mean, just beautiful photos. I mean, over the many years, seeing the unique landscape and and I and I feel it does a very good job of, like you said, explaining and showing visually. I mean, there's a few short, um, um, I guess, stories and little descriptions on some of the photos and stuff. And and uh, yeah, it's just it's beautiful. And w- where can people find this if they wanted to get a copy of it? Uh, the only place you can get this right now is from me. Judy Patrick, mm-hmm. judypatrickphotography.com. Um, I had a distributor, but that was part of the down, <laughs> the downside of yeah. technology and stuff is that they went out of business, book, distri- wow. book distributor, and they went yeah. out of business. And so I, uh, I, you can't even get it on Amazon right now. 
Okay. So, because they yeah. they handled all that in bookstores yep. and everything, and so when they went out of business, and then I'm a photographer and not a salesman, and particularly a terrible salesman of my own work. <laughs> so sadly, the only place you can get it is from me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can order. So just send in a message or, or yeah. email or something through the or website. Or go to my website, yeah. Judy Patrick Photography. And you can find it to buy right on there, or or just reaching out to you. Both. Yeah. There's cool. a link. On my website. Okay. And there's also, but you can just email me personally. Yeah. And we have a soft cover and a hard cover yeah. edition. And I still have quite a few of them. So. Nice. <laughs> but I know my market. I mean, people, yeah. there might be the idly curious in the lower 48, but I, th I think by and large, the people that are going to really be interested in this book are people mm. that have some kind of a relationship to the North Slope. Yeah. Again, you know, just yeah. a relative or. Yeah, or an interest in what's going on, and 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 especially just because there's there's a lot of different perspectives and and sides, and you know, kind of a controversy with some of that stuff up there too. And so I think to see um, another side of that that people don't get to see, and you know, what what goes on there, and when the when the work is being done, you know, how it's how it's uh, taken care of, and and the things that are built to protect and you know preserve the land that's oh. there, and. Absolutely. And of course, my favorite story about that is um, the most common thing that they use up there, are like the lowest hanging fruit before they go to all these other like containment and environmental protection measures that they do are these little things called duck ponds. And mm -hmm. they're uh, rubber, little plastic, soft sided yeah. trays mm -hmm. that people put underneath their vehicles that's mandatory. Mm. So any parking lot up there is cleaner than any parking lot down here, I guarantee it. Yeah. And so I try to illustrate things <coughs> like that, that, you know, the oil industry gets such a bad rap. And, of course, my big beef with them is the fact that they could do a better job telling the, their story because they have a wonderful story. Yeah. So I don't know what they're thinking, if they think they're telling their story, but they're not telling their story, mm -hmm. and they have a super good story. I mm -hmm. mean, they're th what they do is so amazing, and what people know is nothing. You know, they, they just don't tell their story. And I don't know if they're waiting for someone else to tell their story, but... Yeah. Yeah, so I'm trying to help them tell their story, even though they're like these big multi-billion dollar corporations and I'm just little Judy Patrick photography. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But <laughs> trying I, to help them along, tell yeah. their story. Like, you guys have a great story, but... Yeah. But that is a huge part, particularly with all the attention in the Arctic. And mm -hmm. I heard a Shell executive say that one time. She's like, you know, oil from the Arctic... And oil from any other part of the country is the same hydrocarbon. So, in other words, oil exploration and development isn't any worse or damaging in the Arctic than it is anyplace else because mm -hmm. a hydrocarbon is a hydrocarbon. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I thought, that was really a good point. You know, yeah. so we tend to think that if they access the Arctic to get oil out of the Arctic, that it's somehow going to damage the Arctic mm -hmm. more than taking oil from someplace else. Mm -hmm. But it's just patently not true. I mean, mm -hmm. because of the way that they do it. I mean, yes, they have to build a gravel pad, you know, right. call right. it a disturbance, call it what you want. But yeah. I mean, the footprint is so small. And, mm -hmm. and like even this whole, the whole Anwar debate, you know, the, the 1002 area is just, it's so small compared to how big the rest of the refuge is. And it's only in the coastal plain. Right. And I don't know, it's like less than 1% oh, by really? far. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this crazy small area that they actually, and then within that area, the actual disturbance is even smaller, mm, you know, the, for the infrastructure and the gravel pads and everything. But I guarantee mm -hmm. you that story would never get told. Yeah. Yeah. 
because yeah. there's a loud, loudly clanging cymbals <laughs> on the other side. Yeah, you know. Yeah, because it, it, yeah, it's such a, it's a hard balance, and I feel like that's Alaska has to do that quite a bit because mm-hmm. of all the resources that are here and that are being taken. And you know, obviously, there's there are some impacts, and you have a pipeline that goes across the whole country, and there's you know some impacts of that. But I didn't realize until going to it of how how amazing they designed that with shutoffs and and spill safes and oh, now yeah, there's yeah. tons of mm-hmm. caribou that actually will congregate around there because it's warm you know through the winter time yeah. i mean there's just there's other effects that you don't always see and it's you know it's easy to just err on the side of of uh you know of concert of conservation and that's not necessarily bad i mean it's a, it's a good motive but without understanding the whole story and the other impacts that mm-hmm. can come from there that can be positive too um i mean it's just yeah i mean we don't necessarily need to get into all the, <laughs> the the politics and stuff of that kind of thing, but it just it you know you do need to be educated and look at the you know both sides of the story. For yeah, sure. see, I I think that's it too. I mean, if, at the very minimum, the industry needs to people need to hear industry mm-hmm. side. Then mm-hmm. they can decide for themselves. Yeah. But right now, yeah. there's just so yeah. so much loud clanging on the one side that when I go you know down to the lower forty eight and I talk to people down there, I mean they're just well, first of all, they're shocked that I'm not opposed to fossil fuel usage, you uh-huh, know. Right. And then secondly, when I tell them, you know, just what I know firsthand, what I see firsthand. Mm-hmm. And and then um, I like it when they kind of soften a little bit. Maybe I don't change their mind. Yeah. But if they yeah. understand that there is another side to the story, mm-hmm. then it makes them, you know, question that. So, yeah. I mean, and again, that's part of my that's part of my book. It's like mm-hmm. these guys have done a good job and. Yeah. I can tell you these are not retouched photos. Yeah. I'm not that good in Photoshop, <laughs> you know. So yeah. I will confess to taking some dust spots out of the sky. Yeah. Because that's yeah. part of digital is having a dirty oh, sensor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but I'm yeah. not, uh, I, I'm not, I wish I was better in Photoshop <laughs> is all I got to say. Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely not a, not a bad thing for sure. And yeah, it's, it's a beautiful book. If you haven't, uh, if you're interested in that, definitely take a look. We'll, we'll provide a link in the, in the notes from the from the podcast as well and and um yeah i mean it's just been it's been really fun i mean obviously we've been friends for a long time mm-hmm. now and and you know feel like family and it's always nice to come back up here to alaska like and, my other son and uh yeah. and, and the rest of my a lot of my other family comes up here as well and so it's mm-hmm. it's a second home and it's it's fun to to have that extra connection in, in a place like this because i love to come back here and and um you know there's there's so many things to to see and do and it's pretty pretty and you amazing like to come over for dinner exactly yeah <laughs> and it feels like home i mean it just it helps to keep that that connection alive mm-hmm. and just the great people you know authentic people up here it's just it's a it's a great place and you know i know a lot of people still that say oh yeah i want to go to alaska it's like it's pretty accessible you know it's it's uh you know get some miles on alaska airlines you can fly into anchorage and even get out to some of the remote mm-hmm. remote places and but, you know and, you bring uh, up a good point though just so quickly uh, most of the people that I talk to when they talk about coming to Alaska, they mm-hmm. come here for the spectacular scenery and the wildlife and everything mm-hmm. else. Sure. But what they really talk about when they leave are the people. Yeah. The Alaska has just, I don't know what it is about us, but they were, I think it's just because, again, we're at that kind of ground level of just, you know, hardworking, regular people mm-hmm. and we're approachable and um, that that is always what ends up happening. You know, you come for the scenery, but you stay for the people or that's, yeah. that's what becomes memorable sure. because we're, um, well, and even like the earthquake, you know, how quickly 
they fixed everything. We just have this can-do spirit, mm-hmm. and we just, like, get her done. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's kind of just what we do. And, and apparently that's what people see. Yeah. Yeah, I think people are attracted to that, and it's just because not that every place is remote up here and, you know, they have a hard life and stuff, but you still have to go through, you know, the winters and, and, and cold and stuff too. And then you have stuff like right now where it's been amazing and it's like 80 degrees, and a little, little oh, too yeah, warm like at times. Oh, yeah, our hottest summer in decades, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So I was glad I was able to, to be here for a bit of, of, uh, of nice weather to mm-hmm. enjoy out there because it can get pretty crazy rain and stuff too. And we see it all. <laughs> I know. I feel bad. Um, I have to take some pictures this week, and I need to be able to see the mountains. And so uh, I yeah. had. I felt bad. I didn't even want to mm. say it, but I wrote it in an email that, well, it would be nice to get some rain. And I'm like, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Because we know yeah. sometimes as soon as it starts raining, then that's the end of summer, and we yeah. get six weeks of rain, and then we have two weeks of fall, and then it's winter. Yeah. Yeah. I did see that there's some, there's some clouds and, and rain on the forecast, and with all these fires going on, that would definitely be be helpful so we'll see see if it comes through (laughs) i only went two days please yes just a little bit (laughs) awesome well that was a great uh time to spend and you know some of the stories we've we talked about before and some new stuff as well so appreciate you taking some time to be be on the podcast with us it's it's always nice to see what goes into some of these uh, incredible photos you see out there and 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 learn something new. So yeah. that's really thanks, cool. Thanks, Micah. It's okay. always great to see you and chat with you as well. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you're able to glean some valuable insights from this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and let us know what you thought and your feedback. We would love to hear from you. If you want to find out more, visit silverlinefilm.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook under Silverline Films. And we look forward to seeing you next week on Silverline Behind the Frame.